A warm Servus from Munich, and welcome everyone to the Hightech Ventures podcast. Our mission at Hightech Ventures is to help turn science into a triple P dividend. After decades of focus on purely digital innovations, the wave of science-backed ventures is inevitably coming. And in order to tackle many of the world's most pressing challenges, these high-tech innovations are also highly needed. The Hightech Ventures podcast gives you the inside look at what it takes to create successful science-backed ventures. We truly want to understand the entire process from lab to IPO and hone in on the people involved. Entrepreneurs, tech transfer specialists, scientists or investors. Most of them working backstage relentlessly. We will talk to those getting their hands dirty, those who don't shy away from the complexity, but see the opportunity to create lasting impact based on the newest advances in science and technology. My name is Annalena Schindel, and I'm pleased to be your host for this episode today. Today I'm talking to Jaro Barosh, CEO and co-founder of Venium. And welcome, Jaro. Thank you, Annalena. It's a pleasure to join you here today. If I had to sum up Venium in, in one sentence or, or a couple of, of words, maybe even, um, I would say it's all about connecting mobile things to the internet. Would you, would you agree? And to each other. So absolutely. So our vision is to have not just cars and buses and trucks, but think also drones, robots, industrial machines, all sharing data with each other and with the cloud so that we can then run better and better AI algorithms to improve people's lives, making our mobility more sustainable and our cities smarter and safer. I was going to ask, like, where does this take us? Like, how does the future look like with millions and millions of objects, cars, etc., operating with, with Venium? Yeah, well, today, when you think about it, you have a billion vehicles. Um, about two-thirds of them or more are private vehicles that stay idle 95% of the time. So it's unimaginable, you know, how can we live uh, with a, a transportation system where the, the, these assets, which are big machines designed for five people, uh, stay parked 95% of the time and only carry one or two people at a time. So this doesn't make any sense. Um, and so we believe in a future where uh, people and goods are going to be transported by fleets of shared vehicles that are electrical, more sustainable. Um, and to make that possible, you require great connectivity, a lot of data to be shared for these uh, uh, services to be able to op offer the quality of experience to the human users and also uh, in the deliveries of goods that, that, that people expect. And so our job is to provide the software to enable all of these moving machines and also, again, drones, robots, and other um, entities that are going to go around our cities um, to, to connect uh, uh, to each other and to the infrastructure providing um, uh, also new services that we can't even imagine today. Why, why is this such a tough problem? Or what have you figured out that, that others haven't? What are you making possible? So, you know, one, one of the uh, uh, common beliefs about the internet is that it's a decentralized system and so it grows organically. Um, uh, and this is a bit of a myth because it's true for the core of the internet Uh, but it's not uh, true for moving things. Um, and so we, that's why we, we coined the term the Internet of Moving Things, um, because if you think about it today, your smartphone, uh, Annalena, connects always uh, to a fixed 
access points. So it's either a, a, a Wi-Fi hotspot or it's the cell tower of your mobile phone provider. Uh, and so at the edge, um, the internet is actually quite centralized. Uh, it always requires this mobile to fix connection. Um, and we imagine the internet actually as uh, decentralized all the way to the wireless part of the internet so that these moving things can connect to each other. Um, our, our first big deployment was all of the public buses here in Porto. It's, the, it's still the largest mesh network of vehicles in the world. And as the buses move, they connect to each other. They help each other connect to the internet. So they expand the coverage for each other. And they also share data. For example, if you think about maps, why should every vehicle get a map through an expensive cellular link from the cloud if they can get it for free from a neighboring vehicle um, or real-time traffic information. Once you start thinking of a distributed internet also at the edge, then you realize that a lot of information doesn't have to go back to the cloud and back and forth. And so you get less congestion, you get best, better experience for the, the human users. And so we envision the internet evolving there. And it's really hard because the protocols that worked for the fixed internet do not work for the mobile internet um, because the connections are always changing. So you have to be able to provide a very reliable service on top of very unreliable uh, communication links that are constantly changing. And that's what we started doing at the University of Porto, also in collaboration uh, with MIT and Carnegie Mellon. And then eventually we spun that te technology off into the company. You already mentioned that it, it, it's a hard problem. Like you founded Venium about a decade ago, 20, 2012. And I'm guessing you probably spent another decade on, on research before that, before the before the company was right. even, even founded. Yes. So I, I want to trace back all those pieces, like you, your co-founders, the the research and sort of what, what happened in 2012 that suddenly decided now, like now now's a good time to to make this a company. Um, sure. let's, let's, let's start with you and, and sort of your role as a professor at, at University of Porto. Like, Why become a, res a researcher and a professor in the first place? Like, what's, what, what got you excited? So, you know, uh, it, it's funny that you ask because when I, when I look back, uh, uh, you, 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 all, all my decisions were, were, were pretty serendipitous um, and, and, and driven by two, two things. Uh, one was, was curiosity. I always wanted to learn something new and something different. So, so. Uh, I get bored very easily and I like to be out of my comfort zone. And so that, that was always one reason. And the second one was, was people that inspired me. Um, and, and so um, it actually brings me back to Germany because during my um, uh, studies at, in Karlsruhe, I did an internship at Siemens, this very large company. Um, and there were two experiences that I never forgot there. So one was that in the lab where I was working, I was working on system simulations for uh, GSM phones. So basically second generation um, uh, cell phones. Uh, so this is back in 1998. So it's like, a huge <laughs> I'm a little older than I look maybe, <laughs> but basically <laughs> uh, I was very privileged because I saw 2G phones and 3G phones, the entire evolution of, of uh, mobile wireless communication uh, since the Nokia phone. And, and at Siemens, we were doing that simulation. And, um, I, and in my lab, uh, on the back door, there was an org chart. Um, and I saw that the org chart had six different levels. Um, and I thought, 
six levels all the way until someone can actually make a decision. And, and it was just the business unit. So it was like, there's, then there was the org chart of Siemens, semiconductors, and then the Siemens chart. And I thought, oh my God, until you're able to make anything happen here in a huge organization. And it's an amazing company. So Siemens is, is incredible, but I just thought, I, I'm not sure I want to work in a huge company. And then, and then at the same time, because it was a huge company, they were able to invite a very famous professor from Berkeley, Professor Messerschmidt at the time. And he gave this incredible presentation about the future of the internet, where basically he, he said, you know, every, all the people and all the mobile phones and all the things are going to be connected to the internet. So this was in 1998. And, and I remember coming out of that presentation, I was talking with my boss and I was saying, um, you know, isn't this amazing? The internet is going to be, you know, this incredible network spanning the entire world. And, and then he said, yeah, that's all very nice, but now you're going to go back to the lab and you're going to move bit 32 from register A to register B. And I was like, <laughs> and that's when in my mind I decided I want to be on the side of those who are thinking about, you need a lot of people that are moving bits from register to register. And I, and I appreciate that work very much, but I just felt, you know, for me, I, I just needed that cre- freedom to be able to create something different and new from what exists. And so at the same time, everybody was talking about Professor Hagenauer in Munich and the algorithms that he had uh, developed for, for smartphones. And so I decided to just go and meet him. So I, I met uh, Professor Hagenauer and then I ended up doing my PhD with him. Um, and I was then in the U.S. as a Fulbright scholar. And, uh, and I decided that academia just offered me all the freedom that I wanted uh, to uh, explore and do other things. Um, and I also love communicating and teaching and working with students. And so that was the good thing about doing my PhD in Germany is that you're not just a PhD student, you're actually an assistant that is supposed to uh, be working with students and in industry projects. And also uh, at the same time, I was managing the international graduate program of the Master of Science in Communications Engineering which was the first uh, or one of the first English language master programs in Germany um, at all back in 1998. So that was an incredible opportunity to also realize that I want to be in a multicultural environment. And, um, and so, yeah, so it was a very natural decision then after my PhD to just say, okay, I'm going to go into uh, academic research. And I was lucky that um, since my professor was very uh, well connected to uh, U.S. universities and Japan universities, I was able to get exposure to the international scientific community in information theory, which is the mathematics of, of telecommunications, uh, very early on. Um, and so I had great role models of people that, and, and so I, I went into academic also because I wanted to continue working with these uh, people. And then when I decided to come back to Portugal to start my uh, a new institute, I basically already had that network. And, uh, and so being in academia just allowed me to continue, you know, satisfying my curiosity about the things that I wanted to learn. And at the same time, uh, working with very inspiring international people. So, so 2012, you've, Spent, I don't know, about a decade at at uh, University of Porto by that time, I'm guessing, five to ten years on that on that topic. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And But during that time, and that's the other good thing about being a, a professor, is that I was able to do several different things. So uh, 
One was that uh, in Portugal, we were able to take a half year uh, sabbatical every three years, and I was able to accumulate my teaching so that I got to spend a full year at MIT as a visiting professor in 2008. And then when I came back, the Portuguese government, um, actually it was more or less when the Fraunhofer Institute was also started in, in, in Portugal, uh, basically they uh, um, asked me to run a very large uh, research initiative, which was a partnership between nine Portuguese universities and the University of Carnegie Mellon with about 56 million euros in, in, in funding to actually help Portuguese universities um, uh, accelerate their ability to create new companies um, and to uh, bring, you know, the science that they were doing into the market in the form of products and services and businesses. Um, and what I learned at the time was that in certain specific areas of information and communication technologies, which is what I know uh, uh, best, uh, uh, clearly the research that was being done um, in, in Portugal and also in Germany uh, was as good or even better than what I saw in the top American universities. But the uh, U.S. schools like MIT, Carnegie Mellon, and Stanford were like 20 times better at uh, creating startups and products and services. And, and, and they have the whole ecosystem with venture capital firms and so on laid out for that. So I got really curious about, um, you know, learning to do that because I was actually first on the public side on the job of actually promoting that. But then I realized, you know, the only way to learn it is to actually do it. And so I started getting curious about starting a company. And then in 2011, uh, we were already building uh, networks of vehicles and uh, with taxis at the time. And, uh, and uh, an MIT invited me to give a talk about uh, this type of new networks of vehicles that we were building. Um, and uh, there was a lady from Intel Capital uh, in the audience that came to me after the, the, the talk and, and said, you know, professor, that's really, really fascinating what you're doing. You have to do two things. Uh, one is you have to start a company and two, you have to talk with Robin Chase. And I had no idea who Robin was, but I looked her up um, and I saw that she was the founder and CEO of Zipcar, which was the largest car sharing company um, in the world at the time. Uh, and, uh, and so this lady wrote a very funny email, you know, to Robin introducing us. Uh, she basically wrote, uh, you know, the answer to the question you asked me three years ago. And the question was, do you know anyone who can build networks of vehicles? Because Robin, um, with Zipcar, she was trying to get more data from the vehicles to the internet and nobody had a really good solution for that. Uh, and so, so basically uh, we got introduced and, and I was do, working for Cisco um, uh, for a summer and I received an email one day that Robin says, you know, I'm going to be in Palo Alto tomorrow. Can you meet me for coffee? And so I went to uh, the train station of uh, Palo Alto. So it's actually a Silicon Valley story, even though none of the, us actually lived in Silicon Valley. And, um, and then, you know, it was friendship at first sight. And after two hours, we had a sketch of what could look like a startup. And, and then she said, you know, jokingly, um, you know, now we go talk to the VCs. <laughs> and I came back to Portugal and I talked with my colleague, Susana Sargento, uh, from the University of Aveiro, who, with whom I had been working. And, uh, 
who later in 2016 won the European Woman Innovator Award um, in 2016 for our work with, with our company and then and her research. And then eventually um, we started the company uh, with two American founders, so Robin and Roy, who was the chief technology officer of Zipcar before, uh, and Suzanne and me, and, uh, uh, and we started the company. But there's another uh, story behind uh, starting Venium, which was one of necessity. Uh, if you remember, you know, uh, 10 years ago, we had the euro crisis and Portugal was in uh, a pretty bad situation. Um, and uh, in uh, 2011, there were many, many cuts, also salary cuts and so on. And I remember that um, in that Christmas, I invited my uh, PhD students and postdocs to my house, about 16 people. We had a very large group at the time. And I, uh, so everybody was so, so, so depressed. Uh, and they were basically saying, oh, there's no future for science and technology here. Uh, so either, you know, we uh, uh, give up science or we, we, go, we have to go abroad. Um, and then I thought, you know, I have to do something. So, so I told them in that party, you know, 2012 is going to be the year where we're going to take all this amazing technology that you've been doing and we're going to bring it to the market. And I have no idea how to do that. And I, did, and I didn't. Uh, I'm still searching. <laughs> but basically, uh, you know, but um, we're going to start. And, and so we did. So in January, we started. We started two, two companies. So Streambolico, uh, which focused on uh, accelerating uh, transfers using uh, a new technology called Network uh, coding, uh, and then um, Venium, uh, which was building mesh networks of moving things and, and vehicles in particular. And uh, yeah, so fast forward uh, nine years now. So we raised uh, $45 million in venture capital. So we have about 40 people right now. Uh, we have several major automotive brands we're working with and so also a number of other companies like dash cams that uh, are put in vehicles to prevent accidents. Uh, so lots and lots of devices that can use our technology. And it's been quite a long uh, journey from, um, but uh, it's been a very rewarding one. But it was, again, a mix of, of uh, curiosity, people. And I, I will also add that necessity of, of uh, at the time, uh, just proving that it was possible to, you know, uh, do something ambitious at the time where everybody was feeling really down, a little bit like COVID now, uh, where people th feel hopeless. I think that's also the time where you, you know, those who can uh, must step up with, uh, you know, new, new ideas and just, you know, a certain fearlessness that takes you to the, to the next level. I think there's actually a study on on like 28 uh, 2008 and like the the economic downturn and the the companies founded in the US in that that period of time like an Uber, a Dropbox, Airbnb, etc. Also coming out of that wave of sort of like um, actually being in a in a financial crisis. Um, but I love sort of these these different aspects coming together. As you said, like curiosity, maybe serendipity, the the people like that one woman at the conference connecting you to your to your future co-founder. Um, the the, the um, happenstance meeting in, in Palo Alto. Then on on the other side, your um, your students and sort of trying to say let's let's give them a, a positive future and, and positive outlook. Um, what's what's the role of the university in that sort of getting this this started? How did the the conversations with them develop? I mean, I'm guessing you're a taking patents or or IP or something that you probably want to have in that company. On the other side, you're probably 
taking a lot of students or like parts of your group that you're just disassembling maybe you're leaving the the professor role as well i don't know how like how did that <laughs> go about yeah no those are all difficult decisions um so so that that sabbatical at MIT really was instrumental because uh i just saw so many things that uh uh, were like automatic that I didn't know at all in terms of protecting your IP and so on. So that was one of the things was that when I um, uh, was working with Muriel Medard at MIT, a uh, very, very well-known professor in, in, in uh, information theory and, and communication networks, she already had, you know, a standard process where, you know, whenever something looked like it might possibly be useful for the industry, she would just fill out a disclosure form and send it before before submitting the paper uh, just by default and sending it to the technology licensing office um, at MIT, which was a huge department with you know hundreds of people and um, and so and, and so I thought you know it would be really nice to do that in Porto as well and, and I came back. Um, from my sabbatical. And it turns out that the University of Porto already had an innovation office and already had also a disclosure form. Um, And so the process was already there. I just didn't know it existed. Um, And so I started doing the same. Uh, So this was three years before starting the company. Uh, We started submitting and, you know, patents. And in fact, um, I I think at that point in time, uh, the University of Porto uh, with our first patents had like, for something like four international patents in the U.S. Um, and three were from our group. It was something like that around that time. Now they have uh, several more, but it was it was a learning process also for them. So it was great to have this collaboration with the Americans uh, because uh, they were able to collaborate directly then with the technology license offices there um, and adopt some of their uh, learnings and teaching and, and best uh, practices. So... Uh, we submitted uh, a couple of patents, uh, which we then licensed. And we also, um, we, we raised a seed round initially of about half a million dollars. And some of it went into uh, legal fees to actually uh, have a partnership agreement with universities because that part they didn't have yet. And so, uh, and, and now it's you, that, that contract that we finance is used as a template or until recently, it was used as a template for other startups. So it was like we were a little bit, you know, the pioneers in a number of things. I, I don't think that we were doing anything substantially different from what was done in the U.S., but but it was new where we were doing. And, and uh, it felt really good to me because I feel, okay, uh, there was a lot of goodwill and a lot of entrepreneurship also on the side of the university to to support it. The, the, uh, one advantage I had was that I was already quite an accomplished professor when I did that. So I, I, I had the authority also to, uh, um, you know, help make, make some, some uh, uh, changes there. And, and, but lots of collaboration from the university president at the time. So from the rector at the time and the whole office at UP Innovation. And um, they also had a very active uh, uh, incubator that then also won a European award, so UP Tech. Um, and so we decided to incubate our company in UP Tech and also at the University of Aveiro, where my colleague Susanna uh, was working. And so, uh, so those beginnings, you know, were very exciting because there was just so much um, to do. And with uh, Robin's help, we, we were able to raise this seed round. Um, were from angel investors and, and one family member of mine. Um, 
And so we had a little bit of capital to get started. And we had received a large European grant to actually build a city scale testbed of connected vehicles. So we, so we leveraged that as well uh, to be able to prove the concept that you can have hundreds of vehicles sharing data with each other uh, in a city uh, going around. That's when we were able to win the bus company and so on. But, uh, you know, the, uh, the number one thing that then I learned was that uh, uh, it really takes a lot to go from the prototype all the way to a working uh, product in, in a complex ecosystem. And it doesn't get more complex than telecom operators, fleets, uh, you know, uh, cloud infrastructure. Um, these are all huge companies that, you know, take a long time to make decisions and to change whatever they're doing. And here we are, you know, changing the edge of the, of the internet. So we had to be really, really, really careful about, you know, how uh, to save cash and preserve cash. Uh, and that's my number one, uh, you know, recommendation to um, uh, founders is uh, raise a lot of money and spend as little as possible, <laughs> as humanly possible, because it takes it takes a really long time. Um, but with the university, I mean, it was a very a really great environment. We always felt very supportive. Um, and of course, there's also people that are more conservative. And um, and but for every person who asks. Why, why does he want to do this? Why is he asking us to, you know, change this? There was always somebody else who said, well, if he's asking for it, it's because he needs it. So, <laughs> and, you, and you kind of have, I always had like these two uh, uh, kind of people at the university. Um, and so I think it was uh, fairly easy, actually, uh, at least in Porto, to uh, get the support we needed and get started. And the incubator works really, really well. So it was a big win. Um, the other great thing to do was an accelerator that uh, the MIT Portugal program had um, called the Building Global Innovators with teachers from Boston or Cambridge, Massachusetts, that basically helped us uh, along the way in doing customer discovery and you know uh, doing the first elevator pitch. Uh, and at the time, uh, you know, uh, People used to tell me, you know, the technology and the science is only 5% of commercial success. And I, and I, uh, at the time, I, as a professor, I felt really insulted because I was, here, here we are, you know, years and years and years studying and, you know, doing research and experiments and writing papers. And you're telling me that's only 5%. Well, nine years later, I have to, yeah, because you need, you know, especially if it's, you know, a kind of product and, and, and I can't imagine, you know, um, standalone products right now that don't have to live in some kind of, of ecosystem. It's like you need a value proposition for everybody who's already there uh, with a successful business. You need a value proposition that either helps them make more money or save um, money. It's different, I think, with, with consumer uh, businesses. So I'm, I'm uh, a strict business to business type of, uh, of company and, and, and entrepreneur. Um, and so figuring that out takes a long time. The good news is that um, what, what we learn in, in, in science and in, in research and academia can help a, lot, a long way because I think even though business is messy and, 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 and humans, uh, humans are, are messy, uh, especially when they're doing business, 
So, so it's, 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 the, the world is not as innocent <laughs> when money and when a lot of money is involved, things get more complicated. I also learned that. Um, but basically, you know, the, the scientific method uh, is very applicable to entrepreneurship in that you have to formulate hypotheses, you have to run experiments, you have to figure it out. Then you have to communicate really, really well and you have to tell a story. And today also to get published and cited, it's also not enough to have great uh, science results. You also have to tell a, a story, have a catchy title, be able to communicate it well. If you're a great speaker, you get more invited to conferences. If you get more invited to conferences uh, or, or to speak at universities, you get more exposure of your work. So you get more cited. And so I don't think scientists normally look at it as a sales process. Uh, but having, you know, been through um, product market fit and sales processes and so on, I see a lot of parallels between what I was doing to be successful in academia and science. This is politically incorrect, I admit, because science is supposed to be, you know, this morally superior thing. You know, it's uh, a sales process of a different, it's, it's, a, it's a research process of a different type and it's a sales process of a different type. Um, and uh, and definitely, you know, it's different writing a proposal, sending it and getting funded is very different from having to receive 50 no's from customers until you get the first yes. So so this is like and, and having to. But this communication part, I think, is really, really helpful and important. And also the ability to turn, especially when you're selling technology goods, to be able to explain very complex things. Um, in very simple ways. Uh, that's also something that you learn in academia and science that is very, very helpful uh, when you're trying to build a, a tech startup. I, I totally agree. I mean, the, the actors might be different on the timeline, but sort of the, the method of, of how, you, how you go about the, the thinking of how you might approach a market uh, might not be that different from, from how you approach your, your, your research or your, your experiment there. Um, you you touched upon like a whole lot of things, uh, and I was going to ask like you have this great technology, you have this great team, uh, like co-founding. You start out, and then you sort of mentioned like there's this like vast ecosystem. There's like the telecom operators, the cloud, the fleets, the cars. Like where do you even start to to find that business model? And like maybe maybe you can take us through some of sort of like the the pivotal or key things that happened in the in the first couple of years. Maybe also decisions you needed to take and say like do we go down that route or that yeah. route like how do you how did you approach that what do you do when you get 50 no's and like how long do you wait for that yes or do you <laughs> yeah yeah somebody was asking me you know how, how did you endure all that yeah. uh and and i think it comes from a deep belief you know that uh that uh, what we can achieve if we're successful is really going to make a difference in the lives of many many people and so so that was always the driving force. Then later, the driving force was a lot, all the commitments that you make to team and investors and family and so on. So that, that also weighs on me. Um, but basically, uh, the, the first decision in terms of product was, uh, came from the fact that we realized that there was no hardware that actually was able to do the type of things that we wanted to do. Uh, either they didn't have enough processing or 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 uh, or enough storage or they didn't they only had a sim card to connect to the cellular network and they didn't have a wi-fi interface that enabled the devices that you know typically buses and trucks and so on would put to uh track the vehicles were just too simple 
um, and uh, and our, our 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 team members and, and colleagues in in Affair, they knew quite a bit about hardware. So we decided, you know, let's do a full stack product that includes the hardware and all the software layers um, and the services on top. So we were very ambitious. Um, uh, and initially, you know, we uh, were very bold and 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 uh, you could call it naive, but basically innocent at figuring out. Whatever it is, we're going to figure it out. And so we came up with this uh, hardware prototype that, uh, you know, just cut the cost from any anything that we could buy uh, by a factor of, 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 of 10 um, and making it possible for us to deploy in 500 different vehicles. So instead of 2,000 euros, we only had to pay like 200 euros for our um, little box that we put in the different vehicles that enabled them to connect with each other. And, and then we said, okay, this proves that the technology works. So can we sell that as a product? Um, and we, were, we got the, the deal here, which is a commercial deployment in Porto. Then uh, in Singapore, we were able to, to get some traction. We had raised another round. So the first was 5 million. Then the next one was 25 million. And so we thought, wow, uh, we're going to be able to sell this product to all the fleets in the world. Uh, because now we have the capital to do that. Turns out that the device, the hardware was too expensive uh, for us to be able to scale that business and providing internet access to passengers and getting a lot of data from the buses wasn't yet uh, uh, needed because they didn't have cameras or anything. So they were still very far. We were way ahead of the curve in terms of the technology that we wanted to bring to the market. Um, And so that was a, oh my God, minute. Uh, which was like we raised all this money on our ability to scale this business to all the fleets in the world. And um, it's not going to happen quite the way that we imagined it. Um, And at the same time, I started seeing that the uh, automotive sector had figured out that they wanted to do over-the-air software updates, uh, not just because Tesla was already doing it for all their vehicles, but because they realized they can save a lot of money by solving problems with over-the-air software updates instead of having to send people to the mechanics all the time. Uh, and, uh, and they wanted to also provide better infotainment system. And, and people were starting to uh, be mindful of having a good digital experience inside of the car. Uh, and so we started pitching to auto OEMs, uh, and we started seeing some interest. And so we made the important decision to drop the hardware and so become 100% software. Uh, partner with Bosch and and Denso and other companies like that uh, that could run our software in their devices uh, and and go aggressively after the automotive sector. Uh, And that was going really well until COVID hit and the automotive uh, software just, you know, uh, hit a standstill. Uh, And that was a really, really difficult moment. And we had to, uh, again, be make sure we had enough runway and preserve cash by all means possible. Uh, and uh, that was really, really hard. Uh, it came with a silver lining for us in that uh, because e-commerce grew 60% during COVID, uh, delivery fleets suddenly were doing really well. Um, and there were millions of dash cams uh, devices uh, that didn't exist when we started the company that run Linux and Android and needed exactly our software. And so we were able to close uh, several contracts uh, to put our software into these devices. 
And suddenly we went full circle back to commercial fleets, but now with a different business model, which was software as a service, just deploying the software in these dash cams and telematics units over the air and saving them 50 to 80% of their data costs by connecting them to Wi-Fi hotspots on the move. Um, and that's uh, where most of our revenue comes today. And, and at the same time, the automotive industry is back. So we're back on track to put our software into uh, you know, uh, millions of devices and, and, and connected cars. And so we never had like a, a near-death um, moment because we were always very well capitalized. We, we have world-class uh, venture capital firms uh, from Silicon Valley, so True Ventures and Union Square Ventures invested in us. Um, and that would be a whole separate podcast. <laughs> I can give you the headline, you know. Uh, I, I could tell the story of saying, you know, um, I talked with True Ventures on a Friday morning and I had a, a, five, a $5 million term sheet um, on Tuesday evening. Uh, and so that's true. Um, I can also say that uh, uh, the other part of the story, which is that I had 74 meetings with 53 investors before I had a term sheet from True Ventures. <laughs> and so, uh, but uh, we've had tremendously patient uh, investors and, and 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 we deliberately went after U.S. venture capital firms that had created companies or helped created companies like uh, Twitter and Tumblr and Twilio and Fitbit and uh, Ring and companies like that because um, we knew that they understood how hard it is to disrupt uh, an industry like uh, telecommunications or transportation. So many interesting points um, you you touched upon, but I I want to go back to. I mean, you nearly glossed over it, sort of that that this fundamental decision. Probably, you have a hardware business, you have a software business, and suddenly you make that decision to say, "Let's let's close down half of I don't know, maybe half of, maybe a third or whatever of of our company, and let's all focus on on the software yeah. only." Like, how do you how do you manage that transition? Like, how do you justify that to your to your own people? Did you lose people? Like, how do you get them to commit to that that new path? Yeah, we, we lost about one third of our team at the time because we had hardware engineers. We had salespeople that were selling uh, complete solutions to fleets uh, that also uh, did not fit the automotive industry necessarily anymore. Uh, we had a subsidiary in Singapore that we clo closed down. Um, at the same time, I also realized that... Uh, um, Companies make these decisions all the time. This is just part of business because with the acceleration of markets and technology innovation, um, even large companies are forced to be doing this type of adjustment uh, you know, almost on a you know, quarterly basis. Uh, and so you, you do have traditional industries that, that uh, might be able to uh, sustain longer cycles. But in software uh, and in uh, information and communication technologies, you know, this is the speed at which, you know, everybody has to make decisions. It's very hard, especially on the people. Um, fortunately, the job market for uh, programmers and computer scientists and anybody, you know, in, product, in these areas right now is so dynamic that uh, folks are able to find jobs um, faster than, than in other industries, for sure. Um, but it's still very sad when, you know, you have to say goodbye to colleagues that have been with you perhaps since the beginning of the company, but now the company is moving in a different direction and they're, uh, and what they love to do. I, I always, uh, uh, 
say that that our goal is to is to maximize the intersection of what our 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 team members love to do and do really well and what the company needs to get done um, and when that shifts and that inter- intersection is no longer uh, large enough um, then it's hard but uh, it's it's also the job of the uh, entrepreneur the founder the CEO to make those decisions um, and uh, I think in terms of how you you communicate with the team uh, I've I've been at my best and we've been at, at, at our best when we just uh, were able to have a, a frank conversation um, at the, so at, at what, what Jim Collins likes to call the brutal facts, right? So looking at, at things the way they are and not the way that we would like them to be. But at the same time, it's quite a, a stretch because uh, the way I see it as, as an entrepreneur, um, there's a, 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 an American philosopher, Parker Palmer, that uh, works with a lot of uh, uh, teachers and doctors and, um, and, and, and also entrepreneurs. Uh, and he talks about, uh, you know, uh, the tragic gap between the world that is and the world that could be. Uh, and, uh, and if you uh, fall entirely on the world that is, you become cynical and you just say, okay, this is how the world works. This is how business works. These are the rules of the game. I'm just going to play the rules of the game the way it is and, you know, and just try to make, I don't know, as much money as I can in the world that is. So, so, so that's one way to approach, to approach it. Uh, the other one, if you just live on the vision and the world that could be, then that becomes, you know, uh, not actionable, not practical idealism. Uh, because you're just, you know, in an unreal world, you burn your cash and that's it. You're done. There's no way. And so the the difficult thing is to is that you have to build a solid, sustainable business in the world that is that takes that world to where you want it to be. And so how do you and and takes them and you can say the market or the the ecosystem from the ecosystem that is to the ecosystem that could be. And so. You have to have a value proposition that makes sense here and kind of takes everybody in this direction. It's a huge intellectual challenge. It's also a huge communications channel. As long as you keep your team aligned on that, you have to be in that gap. And yes, you have this big vision, but there are small steps that you have to take here. And you're you're not selling out your big vision because you're taking the necessary steps here to build a viable, solid business so that you have a financially sustainable business that can fuel further innovation. Um, as long as you explain that very clearly to the team along the way, that's really important. And so we have all hands every week. Uh, with COVID, we double down. So we also have uh, all hands shorter ones with business updates on Monday and Friday, kind of a newscast over Zoom. Um, and uh, and I keep repeating you know, uh, the same uh, things. And when we adjust our strategy, we also discuss that well. It's it's always messy and hard, but the more you talk about it, the better. You, you've you've talked a lot about sort of that that concept of like there's there's this, that vision of like how the how the world could be, and I mean that's 
part of what also got you started as a as a professor if we if we loop back to the beginning you know like there's this creative freedom and just want to try out and and be be part of that like how do you see especially now after the like being with with venium for the past 10 years like what are things that can be done in academia what are things that can be like are better done in a, in a company or how can these worlds intersect ideally i mean you said you're probably the very first spin-off coming out of porto more or less like out of the university of porto with that formal agreement so like how are things change or how would you envision that those two worlds um, intersect ideally? I, I think you need a lot more people uh, um, that have both experiences. And so people that do PhDs are really important because they spend enough time at the university to understand how university science and academia works. And then they can go to the industry and build that bridge. Uh, and I think in Portugal, for example, right now we have a critical mass of of PhDs that enables you to do that. We hired a number of them, so about 13%, I think, of our team is are, has a PhD right now. And that really helps because then you, you have a common language that you can you can talk. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm very fortunate to be also on our National Council for Science, Technology, and Innovation, which is appointed by the prime minister and basically advises on public policies for this sector. Um, and I think uh, that... Promoting this mobility is one of the key public policies that I think is really important. But I also think it's really important to continue funding basic research that is not because there's there's a lot of there's a number of, of uh, there's a lot of political pressure um, to uh, uh, you know tell scientists what to work on uh, based on what the politicians believe that the economy needs, and I think that's totally the wrong concept. So that's never going to work. Uh, so I think you need that academic freedom. At the same time, you also need responsibility. And the responsibility is that if you are doing something that, uh, that uh, you know, uh, is paid by taxpayers' money um, and, and doesn't have an immediate applicability, then it has to be, you know, hugely creative, hugely bold, hugely audacious. It cannot be just incremental research on what whoever is doing that, you know, in, in the U.S. or in Germany or else, uh, elsewhere just to get published and get a long list of irrelevant papers that don't change the world. So if you're doing basic research, it has to be something outrageous. So that's basically the, the word that I want to say. So I put the, I had set a hard bar. I, I'm not telling you what, I'm just telling you the quality that, that, that uh, as a taxpayer, you know, I, I expect. Um, but then very clearly the university should not be, uh, you know, uh, competing against consulting companies and doing free consulting. It should not be, uh, you know, building products and building businesses. It's an entirely different type of skill set. set. Um, I think business schools can help com bring some of that expertise to help bridge the gap. Um, but I, I, I think... Uh, and at the same time, you know, uh, companies have to allow the public sector to be governed differently because then I hear a lot of business people saying, oh, you know, that would never go through my board of directors. Yeah, you know, public money is subject to a, a bunch of rules because it's public money uh, and it has to follow certain, um, uh, you know, guidelines and, and public administration has a level of transparency that most companies do not have. And so... So I think that that's really, really uh, important to keep as well. So I think we still have to work on that marriage. But uh, but I see a lot of great things happening. Most, I think, as long as we can produce the next generation and the next generation of people with open minds and open hearts, then I think we're able to find that gap and also abandon completely the political correctness of I cannot talk about this and I cannot talk about... No, we should be able to 
have creative fights about everything, and we should be able to use language very broadly um, so that you know we achieve a great result for everybody. Thanks so much, Joe. I know you need to head off, and I want to want to honor your time. Oh, um, but I'm I'm hoping there's there's or I'm, I'm sure there's an audacious goal as well in in mind for Venium for the for, for the next couple of years. Um, when I wish you yeah, good luck on that journey. <laughs> Absolutely, we want to be in a hundred million devices uh, over the next uh, six years. So fingers crossed. <laughs> and in the meantime, anybody just feel free to email me at uh, j b a r r o s at Venium. Dot com. Perfect. Thanks so much. Thanks Sean. so much. Take care. Bye bye. Take care.